All right. Good evening, everyone. I don't generally like to share my plans because I have incredibly nosy and sometimes annoying children. And so the habit's been that I'm a better dad than they are. So instead of them trying to come up with their own plan or question my plans, they should just strap in and enjoy the ride. Uh, however, you guys are not my children. So I realize tonight we haven't really talked much about where we're going or how we're going to get there. And so I wanted to do that just in the briefest of ways before we start. Um, while I'm explaining, you might as well open your Bible to Genesis 24 where we'll pick up tonight. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, there should be one in the back of a pew nearby. You are welcome to use that one. Genesis would be the first book of the Bible, and we'll be starting in chapter 24. Um, but here's the plan. If, if we can catch up one more chapter based on the plan that I've laid out, then the week prior to Easter, we will finish the book of Genesis. And tentatively, we will use Easter Sunday evening uh, in a different way. Uh, it will most likely be a worship night. It's, it's still at least possible, depending on if anyone actually wants to come out. That includes musicians. Um, it's still at least possible that we will just take that night off. But either way, we plan on picking up in Exodus um, right in mid-April, right after Easter. So, with that being said, tonight we have some ground to cover. And it begins with Genesis chapter 24, which is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. In fact, even as you thumb through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis 24 stands out as being one of the longer, if not the longest, chapter. Now, the reason that that's surprising is because it's completely lacking, except in slight reference, the usual suspects of the book of Genesis. And so we'll begin with Abraham, and then we'll cut away for the most of the chapter, and then we'll come back, and in the last few uh, verses, we'll find Isaac again. But the main characters of this story... Um, are Rebecca, the soon-to-be wife of Isaac, an unnamed servant that Abraham sends uh, back to his family's land to find a wife for his son Isaac, and then Rachel's brother Laban, who will come up later in the story of Jacob. But it's worth referencing or recognizing here, although the chapter numbers were added much later than the authorship of the book of Genesis, and so this is not Moses' chapter 24. This was added by an editor later. Nonetheless, this is still an incredibly long account of something that seems to be not really that big of a deal. And so we have to wonder, why is it that the author of Genesis feels the need to tell this story and to tell it so extensively? To, to add to this question before we get started, just to build the tension a little bit, it's worth noticing that we're going to repeat ourselves as we read through this chapter. And so we're going to see the story play out live, and then we're going to hear it told by the servant repeated again for those who weren't present, although we were. And so you, once again, you have to go, okay, why in the world is this chapter so important? Before we can answer that, though, there's, there's a principle of reading the Bible that is actually true of reading any book, but is easily neglected when it comes to reading the Bible. And it's simply this that when we read a book, the author's driving the car, okay? And so the destination the author has in mind and the places he wants to hit in the destination, and even if you think that there's a better detour around it, he's going to go his route and he has his reasons. 
Now, like I said, we all take that for granted when you read a book in your English lit class or even when you read one for fun. But in the Bible, because we can so often personalize our reading of the Bible, we recognize that God has given us this book not merely as a record of what he has done, but in some way, according to the New Testament, something that we participate in for what God is currently doing. In other words, the Bible declares that it's not just a book that records what God has said, but a way that God still speaks. Okay? And so because of that personal feature, a lot of times we're in the driver's seat, and we may not know where the book is going, but we're looking for signs of life based on what we want to find. And so we have our questions, we look for our answers. We have the things that are important to us, and we look for those things to be emphasized. And so when we hit a chapter like this, part of the reason it's such a speed bump for us while we're reading it is because we haven't stopped to ask exactly what is it the author is doing. So, why is this so important to the author here? Remember a couple of things, that at this point in the story, God has miraculously provided Abraham and his wife a child. And not just miraculously, but miraculously provided Abraham and his wife a child as promised. And so the promise has been fulfilled, but it's only the beginning of the promise, not its end. God didn't come to Abraham and say, I'm going to give you a child because I have compassion on you in your infertility. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And of course, that begins with descendants and specifically a descendant. And so it's through Isaac. And so when you look at the beginning of the story that God is telling in the Bible, if you look at the beginning of the nation of Israel and God's plan of redemption that leads all the way to Jesus, it clearly starts right here with this promise. This is the first of many fulfillments on the path of God's plan. But I think one of the things that the author is trying to reiterate here is somewhat similar to what Paul tells the church of Galatia all the way in the New Testament in the letter that he writes to that church when he says, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? And so what he's asking the church in that particular context is if what God did in your life started with an act of God, is it now improved upon or continued on or maintained through something you do? And the answer is implied to be no. Have you, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? No, you're not. You still need and constantly need God's continuation of work. It seems to me that that's the author's intent of including this story. What do we discover in this story? That although God has started the work, he's still got work he's going to do. And so what this does is it sets us up for the expectation that God doesn't just do stuff and then push the ball back to us. He's continuing what he's begun. And so, yes, he's given Isaac, but now Isaac is a bachelor and he's 40. And for this promise to continue, it needs to go beyond Isaac into Isaac's children. And so the story, if you will, continues. So in my opinion, that's why this chapter is so important and it's, so, uh, it's outlined in the way it is. I'll, I'll draw your attention to that, but let's go ahead and start it in chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well and advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. 
but will go away to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, And so he brings his oldest and most respected and most authoritative servant, the one who oversees everything he has, and he says, I want you to make me a promise. And he does it in what I think we'll all agree is a pretty intense way. He says, put your hand under my thigh. Okay? That is clearly a very intimate interaction. In fact, if this is like most Jewish idioms, just that, a Jewish idiom, it's, it's speaking of genitals here. Okay? It's very intimate. Okay? And that's the point. Just think, though, let's use the thigh because it makes us more comfortable. Just think of where that puts the servant during this whole process. Right here right? No further than this. This isn't something you do over the phone or even across the room, you know, or across the table even. This is something where you're right there. You have full eye-to-eye, incredibly intimate contact. Not only that, but by tying it directly to Abraham in such an intimate way, it's tying it directly to circumcision and it's tying it directly to this promise of fruitfulness, right? This way of swearing is probably not a good way to go about it in most areas, okay? I don't care how important uh, your pets are to you, you shouldn't put the person who's watching your pets through this type of ordeal. But here it actually does make sense because this is about what happens next in the story. This is about the promise of fruitfulness that God has given Abraham. And so what he's doing is making clear the servant understands that this is important. This is a serious deal. I need your full attention, and I need you to recognize the consequence if you do not follow through. And before he tells him what he wants him to do, he tells him what cannot happen. He says, do not let my son take a wife from the people in the land where we're living. Remember, God had called Abraham into the land of promise where the Canaanites were living and called him out of a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And so what he says here is, do not find a bride here for Isaac, but go home to my family and find a bride there. Okay? Now, a couple of things you need to keep in mind. Remember, this is, this is the ancient world. This is pre-modernized, pre-industrialized. So this travel we're talking about is weeks journey, if not more, okay, without any form of contact, okay? So what this implies, just for Isaac, for example, is he doesn't get a chance to vet Rebecca even over the phone, okay? This is, this is a intense ordeal. It's one that comes with the normal and standard danger of travel in that world, and it also has a huge question mark on it, Okay? He doesn't just say, go back to my land and find one of my own people. He says, go back to my family, right? And so it's kind of a needle in the haystack phenomenon. This servant just has to go and wander hundreds of miles to a land that he hasn't been in for at least 25 years and find people who are related to Abraham, okay? Now, The servant gets the difficulty of this, and so he responds in verse 5. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Now, I would say here, honestly, he gives Abraham the benefit of the doubt. He says, Assuming I make it alive, assuming I actually find your family and there's an eligible daughter, and she's willing to marry Isaac, what if she doesn't want to travel and play, you know, mystery date 
with the rest of her life in a foreign land with a man she's never met? Right? I think it's a, a valuable and valid question. Abraham's entire reputation, which we're familiar with, is subject to the storytelling ability of the servant. Right? Ask yourself this. What if it was your daughter? What if it was your sister? What if it was your roommate? And somebody showed up the door, explained that there was this wealthy, uh, blessed by God individual, nations away, who would like you to come and be the bride for his handsome, of course, handsome son. Sight unseen. Right? I mean, this sounds like an email you get from a Nigerian prince. (laughs) But that's the point, is for this to happen, there's a good deal of God's provision that has to go on, which is why it doesn't make it surprising that Abraham is asking. You see, remember, we just watched Abraham take this son, his only son, whom he loves, who God miraculously provided in his old age, despite the fact that his wife was menopausal, and despite the fact, uh, you know, that that as uh, Paul says in the New Testament, he was as good as dead himself, physically, and asked him to offer him as a sacrifice back to God to take his life. And we saw in that passage that it appears Abraham's willing to do that because he's so convinced of God's promise that even death isn't the end of that promise. Even if God has to resurrect Isaac, he's clear that God is going to take care of things. He miraculously gave this child, he can miraculously give him back. In the same way here, he recognizes that the next hurdle, the next disconnect in God's plan isn't suddenly his responsibility. He knows that God is going to continue to be faithful. And so he expects it. And if you will, what we see in chapter 24 is a venture of faith. It's Abraham through his servant stepping out, knowing that something is needed and hoping that God will provide, but going confidently and expecting God to show up. Okay? And so that's what happens. And so he says, what if she won't come back? Can I come back, get Isaac, and bring him to her? And listen to what Abraham says in verse 6. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Okay? So do you see the confidence that he has here? We're not told at any place that Abraham's been told by God, hey, go and send for a son. We're not told in any place that God has made clear that his angel is going to accompany. What he's expressing here is not, um, you know, not like a rent an, a- an angel program that he's signed up for and he's expecting, but instead just a general confidence that God's going to take care of things, right? What we're seeing here in the last days of Abraham's life is a fully developed and mature faith. He really believes the promises of God. And so he's not going to sweat the small stuff, even though the small stuff is really big stuff. Okay? And so he says, don't do that. God's promised me. And verse 8, he says, but if the woman's not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So he leaves an exit clause in there because his servant's so nervous. It doesn't seem to me here that that's Abraham not, or even thinking that this is a possibility, but he wants to assuage the servant that this is not his responsibility, right? His only responsibility is to go and to look and to follow the Lord's leading, and if if she says no, then the servant is off the hook. He's fulfilled his duty faithfully, okay? So, um, 
verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, you may remember the name Nahor. Nahor is named for one of Abraham's brothers. Okay, This is a pretty good place to start. So he gets to Nahor, verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw the water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And so what we see here is he arrives He comes to a place where he knows the women of the city will be coming out to gather water before the sun goes down, and he prays. And he reminds himself of who God is, the God of my master Abraham. That comes with the entire heritage of what God has done in his life. And then he says, show steadfast love to my master Abraham by granting me success today. Okay, and so he's asking for divine help. And then he puts it in terms of what I don't think we could call anything else but a sign. Right? He says, let the woman I talk to, the first one I talk to when I ask her for a drink of water, let her also water my camels so I will know that she's the woman that I'm expecting. Okay? Now, it is too early to ask if this is a viable example for us today. So stop it. Okay, let's continue. So he prays this prayer. Uh, Verse um, 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now, notice what the author has just done. It's, he's let us know something that the servant doesn't. He sees this woman, he approaches her as a stranger, but she's not a stranger to us. We know that not only is she named Rebecca, but she is from the family of Abraham. And I want you to notice the way that he articulates the timing on this. Look again at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, okay? So she enters onto the stage while he's finishing her prayer, or his prayer, okay? And so why would the author put it that way? Because he's showing us, he's pulling back the curtain and showing God orchestrating this, right? In the very mouth of the servant, outer flowing the words, and the answer, unbeknownst to him, is right in front of his face. Now, verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up, and the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I will also draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. Now, there's two things I want you to notice about Rebecca here. Um, the first is that the, the adjectives that are used throughout this passage just show her as being as hospitable as we saw Abraham was back in Genesis chapter 18. She hurries and she quickly and she runs, okay? Her way of helping this guy is not just to get him out of the way, 
In fact, it says that she voluntarily offers to water his camels, all ten of them, and their camels. Okay, this is no small feat. Giving a guy a drink, you know, is a cup of water. Watering a pack of camels is a lot of work. And the way that wells are designed in the Middle East, she would have been stepping down into the well, filling a bucket, coming back up the steps, and watering the trough until the camels were done drinking, okay? So she's literally interrupting her schedule to help a stranger, okay? But more importantly than that, this is the exact sign that the servant asked for. Not just would she give me a drink, but when I ask for a drink, would she also offer to water my camels, okay? So the point is here, he asks for a relatively big sign. Not just that the woman God would show would be the first one he interacted with, but that she would demonstrate an outlandish amount of hospitality and that she would actually be part of Abraham's family, okay? So... Here's, here's what I want, um, want to lay down before we move forward. The first thing is, A, okay, what we are reading here is not, is not prescriptive, but descriptive. If you were to title this chapter, How to Follow God's Leading, or How to, um, how to Test God's Will, or How to Receive Answers in Prayer, that would be a mistake. Nowhere in this passage is it telling us what to do, explaining how we should do something. Okay, that the Bible has exemplative qualities is true but just because a bible character does something doesn't mean it's something we should do i'm just going to take that as self-evident because you've been studying through genesis with me and none of you should walk into a foreign town and try and sell your sister and or your wife into marriage and label her your sister to keep yourself alive this is especially true when it comes to god's leading Because the definitive example in our Bible of how God leads people, it's so definitive that it's become a saying, is Gideon and his fleece. Okay? And so what happens in Gideon's story is uh, an angel comes to Gideon. As a side note, he demonstrates that he's an angel. It's a relatively miraculous happening. And he says, Gideon, God has chosen you to lead the armies of Israel to deliver Israel from their enemies, the Midianites. And Gideon goes, nope. Nope, I'm not the guy for the job. I'm from the smallest tribe. I'm the least from my tribe. This doesn't make any sense. I'm a total coward. Why would you do this? And he says, if this is real, I want you to, tonight, this fleece, this, you know, skin of a sheep, I'm going to leave outside. When I wake up in the morning, I want the ground to be soaked with dew and the fleece to still be dry. And so it happens. And he goes, well, I'm not so up on the science of this so just so we're sure I'm going to put the fleece out again and this time I want it to be soaking wet and the ground to be dry and both times it happens and so maybe you've heard this idea of putting a fleece out and the idea is testing God's will looking for a sign okay now first things first Gideon is not a good example of trusting God The story is set up to show that God continuously condescends to difficult, cowardly Gideon to make a point. God is willing to convince Gideon, but that does not make Gideon a good example of how to know how the Lord is leading, okay? And so what seems at first glance like a positive example is clearly a negative one, and I'll tell you the truth. God is going to speak to you in weird ways because you're a weird person. God is going to make things known to you because that's how important you are and how important his will is to you. But none of those should be a standard 
for the normal way we go about discovering God's will. Never take the low points of what God's willing to do and normalize them as it being the way that God works. Okay? Now, this story is a little bit different. We have no reason to believe that the author sees this as a negative story. The leading we see here is exactly the story that the author wants to tell. However, here's the other thing. Too often we approach the Bible like the Book of Virtues. Do you remember this book? Okay, when I was a kid, there was a book called The Book of Virtues, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was written by people who wanted a good moral guide that wasn't the Bible. Right? They wanted to strip morality and virtue away from religion, and so they found and gathered and polished up stories that had good moral points. Stories that would end with, and the moral of the story is. Okay? The problem is, too often we read the Bible in that way, as if its goal is to be a manual for how to live life, or how to live life with God even. But in actuality, the story that God is telling is not really about people. That's why there's kind of a revolving door of entering and exiting characters. The story that God is telling is about what God is doing. And the focus of the book of Genesis isn't really to present Abraham of an example of how to follow God. It's to tell us this story of God redemptively promising to bring about salvation for fallen mankind and the first steps in that process. Okay? Now, when you get to the New Testament, Paul's going to make clear that these things were written down for examples for us. He says that in 1 Corinthians. And so it's not, once again, it's not that this doesn't have example, uh, example qualities to it, but that's not its primary and main point. Okay. Now, with that being said, there's still probably some things we can learn here. There's some things that I want you to recognize before we move forward. The first is this servant is already in God's will, right? What he is doing now is trying to fulfill or to find the fulfilling of a promise he already knows confidently that God has given him. There's nothing mysterious or Ouija board about this. There's no unknown in this will of God thing except the how, okay? That Isaac needs a wife so that he can bear a child so the line can continue, that's part of the plan. That's part of the promise. So he's going on firm foundation to begin with. Second, he really does ask in faith, right? I mean, just be honest with yourself tonight. Have you ever done anything like this? Have you ever been willing to put it all on the line and to risk the confidence that you have in your own relationship with God and say, God, I really need you to show up here, so here's what it needs to look like? Clearly, it involves a line of faith. Imagine this doesn't work. What happens next? I'm just going to take a guess, but I would think the servant takes up a new identity and goes on with his life, <laughs> right? The, the reality is here, he doesn't really leave himself an exit strategy, and I want to recognize that just because I want to honor, um, if this is exemplary, that's part of it. He just says, show your steadfastness by doing this, and it's not vague. It's tremendously specific. But here's the part that's most important to me tonight, and that has to do with how he knows that it's been confirmed, okay? Not only does it go just as he planned, but also, as we'll see, she's also in the family of Abraham. In other words, there is factual support and subjective support in God's will. There's actual life circumstances that were already on the table and had to be met, and... And 
there's also this reality of what we would call answered prayer. Okay. The Bible says simply that we don't always know what God wants. It says this in a bunch of different ways. It says that God speaks in his spirit in utterances too deep for words because we don't always know how to pray. It says that we see in a mirror dimly even though one day we will see face to face. And so the point is, the Bible expects us to get it wrong. And Abraham's life is a perfect illustration of that. God has constantly going to, uh, or constantly been reaffirming the pro- promise, avoiding and ignoring the places where he's taken it sideways, readjusting Abraham's understanding and walking along with him. Um, and so it, Here's, here's the way that I, I want to think about these, these things that I've mentioned, that, that it's um, done in confidence, that it's based on God's will as it is, that it's not vague. I think all these things are important, including the fact that the confirmation here is not just subjective, but also circumstances. Okay? He doesn't say, hey, you know, Abraham, I prayed about it, and God said it's fine to have a Canaanite wife. Right? This fits in a way that he couldn't orchestrate. It's clearly miraculous. But how it works when it doesn't work, or how it works in the usual of life, you need to not just look at this story, but the whole of Abraham's story. Okay? You need to recognize there's ups and downs, there's misunderstandings and corrections. I actually think the formula is pretty simple. Okay? God desires for you as a Christian to know his will. I just think we can take that as an assumption. In our equation, that's a constant. If you really desire to know God's will, the equation is relatively easy to run as long as you add humility and patience. Okay, so here's what it looks like in my life. I'll just I'll just get personal. When I'm asking God to lead me in something, I ask him to lead me and I look for an answer. But when I feel like I've gotten an answer, I hold that answer in an open hand and I continue to pray. What I pray is effectively, God, I think this is where you're leading me. If I'm going wrong here, please show me otherwise. Okay? So here's the point. If you want God to lead you, then trust God and not your internal compass. If you want God to lead you, trust him and not your subjective sense of what that leading looks like right now. Okay. And so that involves humility, the humility to recognize you don't always get it right, the humility to recognize you're totally capable of faking the miraculous for your own subconscious. Okay. Saying this must be God's will when you, what you're really saying is, I really hope this is God's will because this is what I want. Okay. Recognize and, and give yourself you know, the hesitation to go, I can't trust myself, that if there's a variable in this equation, it's me and my wicked heart. Okay. And my dimly lit mirror, right? But if you continue to seek, you shall find. And I really believe that. It's, I feel like it's been demonstrated in my life. And that's actually what we'll see even in this short story. Because what doesn't he do when he finds out this is Rebecca? He doesn't kidnap her, right? He goes to the family, and eventually Rebecca has to choose. There's a part of this moving forward that the servant can't do. And he continues to walk, and with every step, what does he find? Confirmation that he's on the right track. Okay? So let's continue. So, 
Uh, verse 20, so she quickly emptied her jar in the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So even there, it's pretty solid confirmation, but he's not, he's not in it to win it yet. He goes, could this be it? Is this the Lord's leading? Look at the next verse, verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? So he's, without telling her what's going on, he's both testing her hospitality a little bit further and finding out who her family is. Okay. And so what does she respond here in verse 24? She said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in this way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Okay, and so what does he do here? As soon as he finds out the family, he just out loud begins to worship God, to express his gratitude for God's leading. And I'll just add, okay, safe and not safe. Safe, listening to the Lord's leading and following it, always implies a drawing closer to the Lord, a response of worship and gratitude. Not safe. You get what you're looking for and you're gone. Okay. If God's leading in your life looks like, Dad, can I have some allowance, and you're in the car and you're out the door, then you cannot be confident in that leading. Because here's, here's the thing. One of the things we understand from the whole message of the Bible is God doesn't want you just to make good decisions unless those good decisions lead home to him. What he's really doing in leading us, why doesn't he just give us a manual to life? Because he wants a relationship. And so that's not just a give, but a take, a back and a forth, a continuous process. And so if your supposed leading of the Lord is leading you at a distance from him, especially if it's leading you away from him, then it's not him leading at all because his plan is to draw you to himself. So continue on here. Verse 28, the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Okay, now once again, notice the servant hasn't said everything. He rejoices here, but he doesn't say, Rebecca, I have this great proposal for you. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, you're the people I was looking for. You're the family of my master Abraham. That's all he said so far. And he continues in verse 29. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Now, I want you to notice here that Laban, at first, his actions look very similar to his sister. We see the same steadfastness, the same running out, the same sprinting out, but it does add a factor that's important, okay? Why does Rebecca show hospitality? Something in her, right? But what does it point to being Laban's motivation? What is it that draws him to behave so regally towards his newfound stranger friend? Because he sees that Rebecca has been decked out in nice jewelry, right? I... I can say in confidence that the author is pointing this out for a reason because Laban's story doesn't end in Genesis 24 and he's quite the scoundrel, okay? He's, he's a greedy guy and this is the first time it shows its mind but it's worth pointing out here 
that externally the behavior looks the same. Okay? The Bible makes a big deal out of motive. And hospitality in Rebecca's life, the motive is something very different than it is for Laban. And that matters. This morning, Matt taught our church about um, love in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's a major emphasis of that chapter is if your spiritual gifts, even a gift like giving to the poor, isn't motivated by love, it's not valuable. The action can be exactly the same, but it's totally possible to be sacrificing for self instead of self-sacrificing. It's totally possible to realize that your life is in danger and so you're going to save it by doing just enough, but it's really self-interested. With Laban here, he's recognizing, he doesn't know what's going on here, but it looks like it might be profitable. His motivation is a shrewd motivation, but Rebecca's is just weird hospitality for a stranger. It, it's rooted in a care for other people, even people she doesn't know. So, um, verse, verse 31, he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. I don't know about you. Maybe I just have it in for Laban. But that sounds smooth, doesn't it? It sounds a little shady. Verse 32, So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. There was water to wash the feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've said what I had to say. And so he said, speak on. So this is where he draws the line. He says, you guys have been tremendous benefit to me, but now I need to do my duty before this goes any further. I'm not even going to sit down at the table and refresh myself. I've had a drink of water, but no food until you hear why I'm here. Verse 34, he said, I am Abraham's servant. Okay, they're going to know who Abraham is. Okay, he's, he's, a, he's not even that distant of a relative. He's an uncle. Okay, I'm Abraham's servant, he says. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go from my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from the clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Now, why does he include that last part? It seems at least like irrelevant details, like just stuff that's pertinent to him and Abraham. But it's clearly here, and he, he doesn't just say it, he says it and then he says it again. He's transferring the responsibility of what's going on here into the family, right? He's saying, this is what God has led me for, this is what all the signs are pointing to, but I'm off the hook and now it's your choice, and so it continues on, verse 42. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you're prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will also draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. 
Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give you her camels to drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. And I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master kinsman for his son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So he repeats the entire story in vivid detail. All of it. Why? Here's one other thing to keep in mind when it comes to the Lord's leading that I I just like in this example of this unnamed servant. He doesn't impress his interpretation of God's will on their lives, right? Either the facts are going to speak for themselves or they're not. And he does put the responsibility and the pressure there. He even says, are you going to show steadfast love to Abraham? He sees this as being enough evidence that they have a choice here to follow the Lord, but he doesn't choose for them. And this is another place where I think we need to be careful of how we do God's will. Once again, this is not comparable to a young man who feels like God has said that woman's going to be his wife, and he comes and he tells her and then feels uh, you know, like she's being disobedient or unfaithful if she doesn't say yes. I think we can all recognize how easy it is to say, God told me so, to not just get what we want, but to impress what we want on other people. Maybe you've even experienced it personally. I want you to just notice the servant sidesteps that entirely. He just lays the facts on the table. This is the story. This is how I prayed. This is what happened. Now you decide, right? And so, verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, Bethuel would be Rebekah's dad. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Okay, now two things. One, we cannot speak to you bad or good. You should just make a mental note of that. Laban likes that sentence. He's going to use it again later in the book. Um, Second, at first, it looks here like Rebecca's fate has been decided for her, and before you get all uppity, I just want to point out that that's clearly not the case. We'll see that in a second. What they're expressing here is their permission for Rebecca, but not their command. Okay, and that's important. And so verse 55, when Abraham, or 52, sorry, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold, garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Okay. Now, clearly, specifically here, the question is, will you go today? But there's no reason to believe. In fact, all of the old and ancient Jewish documents we have that talk about marriage emphasize the fact that, that the wife had a choice in the matter. Okay. And so we've got to watch out for this presumed patriarchy, that the, the culture of the Bible was patricentrical, meaning that the father was at the center, is relatively clear. But there's a good deal of baggage that comes with the concept of patriarchy 
uh, that, that doesn't always ring true. And we'll, I'll try and point that out as we continue. Second, this is the culture that God spoke in. Okay? And so, once again, it's descriptive and not prescriptive. Even if Laban here, and he's going to do awful things with his own daughters later, even if he does those, those don't become moral for us just because they're written on the pages of Scripture. No more than the New York Times reporting on murder becomes an advocation of murder. This is just what happened. Okay? And the place that God came and spoke into was kind of a mess. Abraham worshipped idols when God met him. That's not a justification of idol worship. It's an amazing testimony to the fact that God meets us where we're at. So, they ask her, and I want you to recognize that here, Rebecca takes a wild step of faith, does she not? Actually, I think when you read about Rebecca in this chapter, she sounds a lot like Abraham. And I think that's intentional. She is a fitting wife for Isaac. Because like Abraham, she's tremendously hospitable. Like Abraham, she's willing to go and leave her land and her family and her house and step into what God has for her. I think the author is intentionally paralleling these stories to speak highly of the choice that Rebecca makes. And so what does she say? She says, I will go. Um, uh, she said, I will go. Verse 59, they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Even that blessing that her family bestows on her is parallel to the blessing that God has given Abraham, right? They may not understand the full totality of God's plan for Abraham, but their hopes for Rebekah coincide with God's plan. And so, verse 61, then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. So we're told here that Isaac has moved, and I want you to notice who's missing from this story. Abraham. Okay? He's not mentioned. In fact, in a second, the servant's going to refer to Isaac as his master. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about the book of Genesis. It doesn't always put things in chronological order because it wants to finish the story before it goes back and fills in the historical details. And this is pretty consistent. We'll see it at least once more tonight. But most scholars believe that Abraham passes away while his servant is out, and that's why we don't find him here. Okay? So that'll help us with the timeline um, eventually, but for now it's just worth noting. Now, it says that Isaac's moved and traveled and settled in a new place, but eventually the servant finds him, and it says he was out in the field meditating, and I'll be honest, we don't actually know what that means. Now, if you want to say that Isaac was a relatively contemplative and peaceful person, that's a pretty good description of the rest of his life. Later on, we're going to find that he prays to God interceding for his wife because she is barren. And so there is a spiritual aspect to Isaac, just like there was in Abraham, and maybe that's what it means. Maybe this is the same meditation that it talks about in the Psalms, right? When it says that those who meditate on the word of God shall be like a tree firmly planted by the spring, like it says in Psalm chapter 1. Or like the command that's given to Joshua when he comes back in the land, meditate on this law day and night, right? It could be that that's what it's talking about here. But the word does sometimes speak of other general things, and there's just no context here. We don't know what he was meditating on, okay? Um, but here he is out in the field, 
And he looked up, and he sees the camels. Verse 64, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. Do you see that? My master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay. And so we see this miraculously, miraculous leading of the servant and the step of faith of Rebekah, and this is where Isaac's marriage begins. And it is, it is from beginning to the end unique. You know, this is quite the meat cute. I was working out in the field, and I looked up, and a woman came up to me and said, I'm your wife, and I said, great, let's get married. Right? That's effectively Isaac's version of the story here. Um, the only thing I want to say about that is recognize here that they have a good marriage. Now, not perfect, as we'll see, but they have a good marriage, and it's founded, it's founded on something that seems a little bit abnormal, very risky in a till-death-do-us-part scenario. Okay? I just want us, as modern Westerners tonight, to recognize the fact that the majority of marriages throughout history were circumstantially arranged. Arranged by others, arranged by the fact that you were in a town and there was only so many eligible women and you were you know, a blacksmith just like your dad was, you know, so you have six women to choose from. Okay, this idea of using an app to find one of the seven billion people alive to be the one is a relatively modern idea. And I just want to say simply that it is not the basis of a good marriage, clearly. We didn't just finally figure out how to actually be happy in marriage. In fact, studies have shown that part of the reason why people aren't getting married as often is because we have this big plenty of other fish in the sea mentality and so it's hard to lock down to one because there could always be a better option and so how do we really know right and so it may even be a hindrance here but I just want you to recognize here um, that this is the first time the day they get married is the first time Rebecca and Isaac have met and they make a good marriage and so simply to say you'll have to stay for the rest of the Bible study over the years to come to find out why but that's not where a good marriage is made not in the meat cute. Chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Mishan, Ishbak, Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba, Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashram, Lethum, and Lemimim. Uh, the sons of Midian were Ephaf, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldadah. And all these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward towards the east country. Now, like I said, if you read the story naturally, it looks like Abraham's still alive, and so Isaac gets married, and then Abraham gets remarried. And I have no problem with that understanding of the text. But, because what he's about to do is close the Abraham story and tell us about his death, and he's clearly just covered an entire marriage with six children and their grandchildren, you're going to have a hard time squeezing all of that in before a death date, okay? It's clear here that he's just closing out a chapter, finishing off a story. And then we have to ask this, why in the world are we told about Abraham's second, second wife? Why do we get this lineage here? And once again, it's a good reminder that the author's intentions may not be your intentions. 
what this passage demonstrates to us is two things. First off, this is part of the promise that God gave Abraham. Not just that a great nation would come from him, but many nations. And so we see Abraham in his old age, when his body was good and is dead. In other words, what God miraculously did in Abraham so that he conceived in Isaac was a relatively permanent thing. And he maintained fruitfulness into his second marriage after Sarah died and had six more children. Okay. So the first thing is just showing again, pointing to the promise that God has given and its fulfillment in his life. But the other thing he wants to clarify is what's unique about the relationship of all of his sons and his only son. And so notice what it says uh, again in verse, um, verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east of the country. So he's generous to them. He shows them love. He gives them gifts, but he gives the inheritance to Isaac and he sends them out of the land because the land is for Isaac, as God has told him. Okay? And so here we're coming to the end and we get kind of the um, obituary here of Abraham. Verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. That means that he lived in the promised land for a total of 75 years. That's at least 50 years after the birth of Isaac. Okay? And so, so uh, at his death here, Isaac is 50 years old. Now, we're going to find out that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah and so depending on what's going on here, like I said, it's, it's hard to figure out how the timeline works. But understand here that the author's plan is not chronological. He's got a different thing going. And so he closes the story here. Abraham dies, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years. Okay, Died in a good old age, an old man full of years. The emphasis here is that he had a good life. Okay, And he continues on, and what does it say? Um, he was gathered to his people. Now, there are some that will tell you that the Old Testament has no concept of an afterlife. They'll say that that's a Christian invention, that the New Testament arbitrarily added this concept of heaven, but the ancient Israelites didn't actually believe in anything after death. And to be honest, there are places, especially in the Psalms, that seem to speak that way, where David will say, who praises you after they're dead? This life is all we have. If you send me down to the grave, that's the end. There's no one to worship you in Sheol. And so that's where the idea comes from. And so they look at a verse like this and they go, well, clearly it means that he was buried in his family tomb. Okay. However, this phrase, gathered to his relatives, is used six times in the Pentateuch. And four of those six times refers to people who were not buried with their family who were specifically said to be buried elsewhere. Okay? And so the recognition here is one of more than just a tomb. It's, it's a life after death. It's going to be with your ancestors. It makes sense of the parable that Jesus tells um, about the poor man and Lazarus, right? Or the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus is... Uh, is in this place and Abraham is present and he's, he's praying. It's, it's that same world. It's that same reality. It makes sense of the fact why Job says that someday he's going to see his redeemer, redeemer on, on the earth, that he's going to know and live. Um, these things are here. They're present. Um, but this is a place where we see this idea that the Jewish understanding was that death wasn't the end. And so it says here he was gathered with his relatives. 
And it continues on here, um, and it tells us that he was buried. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite east of Mamre. In other words, the cave that he bought for his wife, Sarah. So he's buried there. Notice Isaac and Ishmael are both present for the funeral. Um, and then verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. And once again, that's a piece that goes into this whole timeline. We just saw Isaac settle in Beer Lahiroi in chapter 24. And so you're seeing how this all fits in. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Okay, now why are we talking about Ishmael again? First off, outside of one little tiny reference, this is the last time Ishmael comes up in Genesis. So he closes the book on Abraham and hands things off to Isaac, but God blessed Isaac, and now he's going to close off the book of Ishmael. As I said last week, Genesis is like a tree that's growing up, and we're following the trunk, and every once in a while the author follows a branch only to come back to the trunk and keep moving up the main line. And so here he closes the story of Ishmael before he moves on to the story of Isaac. And so these are the generations, the Toldot, this is the book of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebioth, the first, firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Misbam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedma. Now remember, all of these names are going to grow into nations and people around Israel, okay? So this is relevant to the Jews, because they know these people groups, and effectively here, they now understand that they're family. But there's a second reason why this is mentioned. Notice verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. The author tells us about these twelve sons because this is exactly what Hagar was promised. That Ishmael would be, yes, a wild man would dwell in the wilderness, but from him would come twelve princes. Okay. Now that's going to be really important because in a second, Isaac can't have any kids. And so it's creating a tension here. Here's the fulfillment for Ishmael, the not chosen one, but what about Isaac? But, um, but we haven't gotten to Isaac yet. It's just laying this out. So what do we read about Ishmael? God has been faithful to do everything he promised Ishmael. Okay. Verse 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now, that might be striking to you because maybe you don't think of Ishmael as a believer. And so if there's an afterlife, isn't this just a category for all people? But I'll remind you that according to um, chapter 19, that's not right. According to chapter uh, 21, that when Ishmael is out in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar and says, I've heard the boy crying out to me. Okay? Ishmael has a relationship with the God of his father. And so here he's gathered to his people. And so the story of Ishmael closes there. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, verse 18. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. When it says over against, that's once again a reference to the promise that God gave Hagar, that he would be against all people, but, but there would be room for him. That he would have to fight for it, but he would maintain his ground. Verse 19 these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, here's something that you would miss if you weren't paying attention. You can look through the book and you'll find 11 times when it says these are the generations, okay? The first one is these are the generations of the heavens and the earth in chapter 2. And if you follow them, every time it says that, it doesn't tell the story of the name, but the children of the name. 
So when it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, that's Adam. And when it says, these are the generations of Adam, that's Cain and Abel. And when it said, these are the generations of Terah, that was Terah's child, Abraham. And when we just read, these are the generations of Ishmael, that was a sentence before his death. It tells the story of his 12 prince sons, okay? Now, the reason why I bring this up is because in the book of Genesis, there is no generations of Abraham. It never says, let me tell you the story of Isaac, okay? Here, it skips straight from the generations of Terah and Ishmael to the generations of Isaac, and it's really going to talk about Jacob, okay? That'll actually make sense. When we read Ishmael, or Isaac's story, it's short. The majority of it's contained, all, his self-story, in the next chapter, okay? Just one chapter, whereas Abraham's had 11, okay? So, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the arm, uh, armoran of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the armoran, um, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his, pair, uh, granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Okay, so what do we find here? That's miraculously provided wife for bachelor Isaac with all the promises. She's barren. She can't have kids, okay? God has set up the game the exact same way he did with Abraham. So he says to a man who, can't, who doesn't have kids and who can't have kids because of his barren wife, I will make you a great nation. And then he gives a, a child miraculous, brings miraculously a wife, and that wife is also barren. And so he miraculously intercedes again. The emphasis, once again, that God wants to get across is that he's doing something completely unique with Israel that he's beginning something that is inherently miraculous because it's not like other nations. And so here we find that Rebekah is barren, and so it says here that Isaac prayed for her, interceded for her, and that God opened her womb, okay? Now, it says that they married at 40, and we'll find out when the kids are born that Isaac is 60. So it's skipping over a large period of information here. 20 years Isaac waits for Rebekah to have a child, just like his father waited 25 years for his birth. And so once again here, we see God delaying the giving of what he's promised to give. Why? To develop faith. And it doesn't tell us if Isaac went 20 years without considering praying and then finally went, I don't know what else to do but pray and then prayed, or if he'd been praying continuously without the full answer for 20 years. It doesn't tell us. Both of those, I think, are viable options. But either way, when Rebecca has a child, what does Isaac know for sure? This is a child from the Lord. This is a miracle. This is something only God could do. God has done just as he promised. And so she's pregnant. She conceives, verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? Okay, so notice it doesn't use the language, but it's twins. The children, plural, struggled within her. And the word there for struggle is extremely strong. It, it should picture the idea of just crushing against one another. It's bad enough that her prayer, which is a little bit inarticulate, the sentence is, an, is a, a, a total one. What she actually says is, if this, then why me? That's what she says. Okay? But the idea here is, wait, I thought, I thought this is everything. I th I'm pretty sure I'm dying. Right? That's the idea. This is such a tumultuous pregnancy, she's not sure she's going to survive it, let alone whoever's inside of her. Okay? And so she's trying to figure this out, 
So, verse 2, she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so what the Lord tells her as she seeks to understand what's going on is it's twins, and it'll be two nations. And just like there was Isaac and Ishmael, I'm going to choose one, and surprise, surprise, it's going to be the younger. Okay. Now that's against cultural expectations. And we'll see this over and over again, that God chooses the lesser, the younger. Like Gideon, he chooses the unlikely instead of. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were, who were high or mighty or powerful or rich were calling, but God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak to confound the strong. He's chosen the poor to, to make of nothing those that are something. Okay? And so God chooses Jacob, despite the fact that the older is supposed to get everything. He says, he's the one I've chosen, and he lets Rebekah in on the secret here. Verse 24, when her day to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Now, I know that probably doesn't register with you when it says, so he called his name Esau, but Esau means hairy. We'll find later that he is also known both by the name Seir and Edom, which means red. Okay? All of these names come from the birth story. You know how your parents tell your birth story? With this one, when, when Esau shows up, he's very hairy, even as a baby, and he's either very red-skinned or possibly a redhead. Um, by the way, redheads in the ancient world were suspect. People did not like redheads to the degree that the medieval church believed Judas was a redhead. And so if you've seen Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation, that's why Judas is a redhead because that's what the medieval church believed. Um, but, but that may be what it's talking about here. It's the same word that it uses later to refer to David that's sometimes translated ruddy. Okay? And so that we don't know if that means that he had like a healthy rouge to his body or if he had a surprising mutation in hair color. But either way... It's, it's a funny start to the birth, but it's not, it's not the total story. Verse 26, afterwards his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And so the second twin is delivered directly after actually holding on to his brother's leg and just following him right out. Now that's appropriate for what we already saw about them, that they were wrestling in the womb, right? And so this wrestling continues even in the process of birth. But notice here, Esau is the older by minutes at most, more likely by seconds, okay? But nonetheless, he's the older, and they call him Jacob. Jacob means to take hold of the heel, okay? And so it's a very literal name, okay? But as is often the case, the names that are given in birth in the Bible have significance for the life that follows after. They're a little bit destiny. And so here... Um, Esau and Jacob are named, but these are really going to be the paradigms for how their relationship continues. And we'll see that in just a second. So we're told here that um, at the end of 26, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So 20 years after they got married. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
So the kids grow up, and they grow up differently, as kids always do. And so it says that Esau was kind of an outdoorsman, that he was a hunter, and that he, he kind of won his father's love because he was a good hunter, and he made a pretty good barbecue. Jacob, it says specifically that he was a blameless man who lived in tents. Now, not to point out the obvious, Esau lived in tents. Abraham lived in tents. Everybody has a tent, okay? So we have to ask ourselves, what is it trying to say here? And first, when it says here that Jacob is blameless, that doesn't mean that he's spotless, righteous, or clean. Although that is the way the phrase is used in many places, including the book of Job, if you keep reading the story, that's clearly not the case. The word's being used here in a more general sense that probably means that he was relatively quiet, okay? Blameless in the sense that he's not the type of neighbor you would call the cops on. Okay, that's the idea here. Um, and then it says he lived in tents to emphasize not something that he did that was outlandish or abnormal, but that it was fitting to him because he spent all of his time indoors. Okay? And so he's just very different than his brother. That's all that's said. However, we're also told here that that led to favoritism, that Isaac loved his son, uh, loved his son Esau and Re- Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay? Now, Let me be clear here. There is no justification for this, and they're going to reap the consequences of this, and they're horrible. When Rebecca finally, at the end of a few chapters ahead, sends Jacob away, she never sees him again. Okay? This favoritism will have, will wreak havoc in their lives. Okay? But it also helps us to understand the dynamic in this family. Okay? So, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Remember, Edom means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Okay, pause. What in the world is a birthright? Remember, I mentioned earlier that the firstborn had certain special status. And that in the Bible involves two things, the birthright and the blessing, the, um, the Becca and the Bekora, okay, is the Hebrew words. The birthright means that he gets the lion's share of his dad's inheritance. Usually, although it's not consistent, usually it was two-thirds, okay? So in the case of two brothers, double what his brother gets. That's the birthright. The blessing has to do with this big plan that God has and what happens next, Okay? And so they're both dealt with in this story, but it begins with the birthright. But what I want you to notice here is the way that this portrays both Esau and Jacob. And let's do Esau first. Esau is hungry because he's had a failure in his hunting. And so he comes into the tent and he says, let me have some of that or I'm going to die. Now, once again, I'm reading between the lines here, but I don't think he's literally starving to death. Okay. In fact, the New Testament backs this up by saying that he was basically just a man controlled by his appetites. Probably something he got from his father who loved the cooking of his son, right? But nonetheless here, he feels more intensely his hunger for this meal than his future in the family inheritance. He's willing to sell tomorrow's advantages for today's needs. Okay, that's how Edom is portrayed here. In fact, notice how it says it at the end of verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way, and Esau despised his birthright. Okay, we haven't dealt with Jacob yet, and that's intentional. There's no excusing what Jacob does here, 
but recognize also that we learn something about Esau here. He doesn't even eat and go, hey man, that was a terrible deal. He just, you know, wipes his mouth with a napkin and walks out of the tent. That's how the story reads. He does not care about the birthright. He despises it, the author of Genesis tells us. He's just not interested in these things. On the other hand, look at Jacob here. Even if his brother is not starving to death, he clearly takes advantage of the situation. Okay, it's cunning, it's crafty, and he knows Esau's dumb enough to fall for it. Okay, I'm just going to point it out here. Esau does not come off looking like a smart guy in the Bible. Okay, that's going to become more clear. But even here, um, he he just he just doesn't realize the circumstances and acts impulsively. But he only gets the chance to act impulsively because Jacob takes advantage of him. Okay, now that's implied even by Jacob's name, the heel catcher. Okay the supplanter, as it used to say in the old King James. The idea here is that he trips other people up. Okay? The idea here is that he takes advantage. And so that's what he does here. Now, I want you to notice that the story seems to finish there, but then it goes on to chapter 26, and now we get the life, sty- the life story of Isaac. And I'll point out once again, chronologically, that doesn't make any sense, because in a second... Isaac is going to convince a foreign group of people that Rebecca is merely his sister. It's hard to do when you've got twin boys running around, isn't it? Okay. So why does it do that first? Because it's really telling the story of Jacob and Esau, and now we get the flashback to give us some context. Once again, here's another chapter that we would read on its own and go, why are we talking about arguments and wells? Is this really all of Isaac's life amounts to is a bunch of arguments about where water is dug? But it's intentional here. It's trying to make a point. It's giving us the background. What we've just seen is the birth and this first fight between Jacob and Esau. And we have to go, why in the world are they like that? This is the chapter that tells us why. Okay, this is the chapter that sets us up for what happens next. Chapter 26, verse 1. I just want to move through this whole chapter very quickly. Now, there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. I cannot state that enough. There are still scholars who believe that the author has accidentally attributed this story to Isaac instead of Abraham. Did you hear what the sentence said there? The author opens up and he says, I'm not talking about the time with Abraham, okay? But nonetheless, it's super similar to what his dad did before Isaac was born. And so what does it say? Isaac went to Gerar, um, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I will tell you. So all the way back, when Abraham first entered into the land, when there's a famine, he responds by making the natural choice and going, okay, in an Aryan place where there's no rainfall, I should head to the nearest place that's supported by something other than rainfall. So he goes to Egypt because of the Nile. Okay? That ends up being a mistake. And God kind of calls him out of it and he says, stay here and I will take care of you. I said, this is your land and I'm not going to give you what I can't keep you in. Okay. But while he's down there, he says about his wife that she's his sister to protect himself. She almost marries into the family of Pharaoh and spoils everything. And so here, God just steps in and goes, hey, I know there's a famine. Don't go anywhere. And so he stays put. Good for him. But notice what happens next. 
Verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Notice here he's not living on his father's faith. God appears to Isaac and reaffirms the promises. But like his father, uh, well, verse 4 first, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I'll give your offspring all these lands and your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. The faith is his, the cause is not, right? He says, I'm going to do all this for you because of your dad. And this is a maintained characteristic. When we get to the lineage of David, so many of his sons are going to be told by God, I'm only allowing you to be on the throne because of the faithfulness of your father, David. Okay. And some of us can probably relate to this, that when we look for causes of mercy in our life, we have to look elsewhere. But it doesn't matter. Even with Abraham, there was no cause. He was merely an idol worshiper in a foreign land, one of many sinners that God chose. But there's a reminder here that Isaac's promises don't rest on him didn't begin with him, that there's a heritage before this. And so he says all these things, and then he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, because of Abraham's obedience, he says, therefore obey. Look at how it says, uh, or, um, well, it said that earlier. He says, stay put. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Okay, his, he and his dad have a complex. Both of them, because of the same reason, because they have beautiful wives, feel the need to protect their own lives by putting their wife at risk, making her bear the burden of the danger. Don't tell anyone you're my husband or you're my wife, because if they know that, they'll kill me and they'll take you. The only other alternative there is it plays out over and over again is they take her and now Isaac is wifeless. And she's lost, you know, to someone else. But that doesn't enter into Isaac's mind, just like it didn't enter into Abraham's mind. We're not told here if this is a trick of the trade that he learned from his dad. Both of the occasions in the book um, of Genesis that Abraham goes through that are similar to this are before Isaac is born. And as I said earlier, it's hard for me to believe that Abraham said, let me tell you a story, right? Have any of you had that occurrence where you discover from your parents' friends what they actually did when they were your age? Right? It's not usually the thing we tell our kids. But nonetheless, here he is doing the same thing. But it does play out a little bit differently. And so what happens, verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Okay, the word there, laughing, is the same one that was used of Ishmael playing with Isaac. It means sporting. It means roughhousing. It means not the way that brothers and sisters behave, okay? But notice how different this is. This isn't God divinely intervening because somebody in royalty takes Rebecca away. This is just after them living a long time, finally they can't hold up the ruse anymore because prying eyes notice that they're behaving a lot more like husband and wife. And so it continues on here and it says, verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then can you say she's my sister? And Isaac said, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Oh, man. Don't ever put that on a valentine. <laughs> Verse 10, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of our people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Now, I want to clarify something here. This is not the same Abimelech. Abimelech means the king is my father. That's what it literally means. It's a title. Like Pharaoh is a title, right? Except 
except for Jay Farrow, the Saturday Night Live cast member, there aren't Pharaohs by name, okay? That's why we talk about Tutankhamun, right? That's his name. Pharaoh is his title, okay? Just like there might be people named King, but there's also the title King, and so you're King George, but that's not your first name, okay? In the same way here, this is a descendant of that Abimelech, a new ruler of the people, but the story plays out the same way. Why is the author telling us this? Because it sounds familiar, and it should, God comes, gives promises, tells him not to go into Egypt, and then the same thing happens. Why is this important? Because it wasn't by Abraham's faithfulness that this promise is maintained, and that's true of Isaac as well. And also, what does this point to? It points to a repetition of deception, right? Abraham lied to Pharaoh, lied to Abimelech. Isaac lies to Abimelech. And so is it any surprise that Isaac's son Jacob and his wife deceive him. And it doesn't stop there because eventually when Jacob is older, his kids are going to deceive him with the corpse of a goat and a little bit of blood and say, isn't this your brother's coat? Right? There's a chain here that's going on. There's, there's a evidence of what Paul says in Galatians when he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. And so I want you to recognize here that Isaac can't untangle the promise of God. It's tied up, it's secure, it's not going anywhere, but that doesn't mean he gets a free pass in life. Okay. And so here this happens um, and verse uh, 11, Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him despite what we just read. The Lord blessed him, verse 13, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you're much mightier than we. So they're watching and they watch that despite the famine in the land, Isaac is reaping a hundredfold and everybody else is now threatened by how powerful he's become, okay? And so what happens is the servants of Abimelech start sneaking on to the place where Isaac is living and filling in his wells to try and slow down the prosperity, but it doesn't stop. And so finally Abimelech just says, just go away. Please just go away from us. And so Isaac does. Verse 17, Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names his father had given him. Now, why does he do that? He does that because Abraham and ancient Abimelech had a deal. And Beer Lahairoi was given to Abraham to be used by Abraham. So Isaac calls it by the same name. Why? to remind everyone in the area that this is, this is appropriate, this is right. He continues on, verse 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, this water's ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. All of these wells have terrible names, okay? Fighting, argument, debate, that's what these words mean. And so he's digging wells, and then as they fight with him, he's just giving them up and digging a new well. I want to remind you here that you can't just dig and find water. Okay, the fact that he keeps striking water in this land, especially in the days of a famine, is evidence that God is with him, okay? And so everything they're doing to stop 
the prosperity of Isaac isn't working. But also, notice here that Isaac is kind of unwilling to fight. I don't want you to overinterpret that and see him as some sort of wuss. Because there's a, there's a possibility here, too. God has promised to take care of him. He doesn't need to fight for him to be taken care of. That's possible. Okay. So, verse 22, he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called the name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means room. In other words, he moved far enough away that Abimelech just wasn't concerned. But the story doesn't end there. Notice what happens next. Verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I'll bless you and multiply your offspring for my servants Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Okay, getting a pattern here? Dug a well, dug a well, dug a well, dug a well. God appears to him. He builds an altar settles down for a while, digs a fresh well, and then verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azutha, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and you've sent me away from you? Notice he's no longer in the land of Gerar at all, right? He's moved so far away and they still come to talk to him, and so he's a little bit prickly about it. He says, what in the world are you doing here since it was clear to me that you didn't want me around and I left? And so they respond, and what do they say, verse 28? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Now, this is the same thing that Abimelech ancient does with Abraham. He comes to him and he says, clearly God is with you. Let's just make an agreement that we're not going to attack one another. Now, why is the author telling these stories? Because it fits the promise that God has given, that God is going to protect them and bless them. And as it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that they shall be a blessing. And what that literally means is not they'll be a blessing to other people, but that people will say, may you be blessed like Abraham. That they'll be a verbal blessing, that people will talk about them, and it'll be like, um, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with Abraham is the idea here, okay? And so they come and they see the same thing and they ask for the same thing. Here's what they recognize, that even if Isaac is an idiot, which they've seen personally, God is on his side, and they're not sure they want to be on the other side, okay? That's what's going on here, and I want you to recognize where this comes from. It comes from Isaac giving up and relenting over and over instead of fighting, even when he has the rights to claim, hey, wait a minute, I've got the deed on this well, and your great-grandfather signed it. He just lets it go. It may be that what we're reading here is similar to what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It may be that what we're seeing in Isaac is meekness, that he's unwilling to fight for himself because he knows that the God who created heaven and earth will fight for him. David does the same thing with his son. When Absalom says, you know what, Dave, I'm king now. David just leaves. And it seems to me that's because David has learned through a long process of 14 years of God's promise that he'll be on the throne, that if God can put him on the throne, he can put him back on the throne. In the same way here, what we're seeing in Isaac may, if you're macho or something like that, seem like it's defaming, is actually speaking very highly of the fact that he trusts the Lord, that he's faithful, that the same one we found meditating in a field and interceding for his wife in prayer is also dealing with conflict in a way of faith, okay? And so they make this covenant. 
um, verse 29, that you will do no harm just as we have not touched you and have not done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Now that's a stretch, but still. You're now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said, we found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And so Sheba sounds like the word for oath, just like we saw um, Beersheba earlier um, being the well of the oath. And so he renames it for the same thing, remembering both the oath that his father made with Abimelech and the one that he did. So I think a good summary of this um, is what it says in Psalm 37. As I read this psalm, just ask yourself if it sounds like what we just read. And we'll just read those last two verses and we'll close for the night. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give, the desire, give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the new day. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not for yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Okay, and so the psalmist sees the life that Isaac is living as effectively the good life, the life of one who's faithful to God, who calls to God to avenge his battles and fight his wars and seeks to be a man of faithfulness and of peace. And so Isaac is a mixed bag like all of us. Here he's compared to Abraham, but he's also got the Achilles heel that Abraham had that's going to set up for the next scene. As I've told you before, the author of Genesis is incredibly complex in the way he tells his stories. We're going to enter in um, next week to this idea of a meal and a deception and an almost fratricide of children, and it should remind you of the Garden of Eden all over again, right? Um, and so the author's doing a lot all at once, but let's just finish up here with the last verse here. He's got one last loose, loose thread before he gets back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And so he tells us here at the end of chapter 26 and verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Okay? Dummy. I mean, what, what else can you say? He, he doesn't consult his parents on this. He's got to know the story of how his parents met, right? Which includes, do not take a wife from the land, but go back to my people. And he doesn't take one from the Hittites, he takes two, okay? Another standard that is not a good thing. He knows the story of his grandfather, Abraham, who God gave a wife and then he tried to make a half-wife to make things work out, right? There's just no thoughtfulness in this. Esau thinks, I need a wife, two is better than one, and he goes out and he gets them from his next-door neighbors, and it says that it made life bitter for not just Rachel, or Rebecca, but also, also for Isaac. Okay, this becomes a point of contention. And I'll tell you what, he's not done. He's going to realize they don't like his wives and his next plan is going to be, I'll get a third one. Okay, but this is all just setting the stage for what happens next. Okay, this is the flashback that gives us the context for what happens next so that we see how we get to this final nuclear option that goes down 
where a wife deceives her husband in a tremendous way, where a son pretends to be his older brother to get the blessing, where it leads to almost his own murder, and he runs away, leaves the promised land, which God will deal with, but he does have to deal with, and puts the whole thing at risk and, and literally ends this family. Okay. And so it sets the stage here. But I, let's just finish with this thought and then we'll pray. One of the reasons why you can't use the Bible as a set of examples is because the examples are mixed. Okay. And so if you want an example in the Old Testament, if you want the great lesson that's told through the lives of the people as they interact with God, it's very simple. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's a perfect summary of the Old Testament. In fact, it's a perfect summary of the New Testament. It's a perfect summary of God's behavior with mankind. And so sometimes we walk in faith and God proves himself faithful. And sometimes we stumble and God picks us up because he's faithful. And sometimes we rebel against him and we can do nothing to overturn his plans. And it doesn't mean that there's not consequence. What we sow, we'll also reap. But even in that reaping, with all of those weeds, God's love is still gracious. And even when we sin, his grace superabounds above it. Let's pray. Father, the real reason we look for examples, the real reason we read the Bible and we think to ourselves, we should be like Abraham, we should be like Isaac, is because there's a part of us that still believes that we're capable of fixing this. If we just followed these footsteps, if we just tried a little bit harder, if we just reached deep down inside ourselves and found that thing we need to succeed, we could do it. But the Bible testifies from beginning to end, both in its examples and in its direct proclamation, that we cannot fix this. That we cannot bridge the gap between us and you. That the sin problem goes too deep in us and so that you had to bridge the gap. Become a man. Take the penalty of our sin upon yourself. Die in our place. And then offer us life in exchange. And then freely give us salvation. And then pour out your grace and invite us into your family and adopt us and give us your own divine nature and the person of the Holy Spirit so that we could do what we could not do. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be like, but we would see who you are and be transformed, as Paul talks about and that we would be transformed from glory to glory because you make us, you change us. I pray that the foundation of our life would not be our vows to you, but the promises you have given us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.